Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Ken loves talking about cars and automotive trends. And here he is, the automotive host with the most, Ken Chester. Welcome to another hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host and automotive tour guide, Ken Chester. Thank you for dropping by. With each and every hour that we spend together, I try to share information of interest in a way that's easily understood. Sometimes during my best efforts, I may get a little bit into the weeds, but that's why I have my team to pull me back out. Now, we have plenty to cover this hour, so I want to get started. In breaking news in a few minutes, it's all about the incredible shrinking automobile factory and how an upscale automaker is venturing into real estate. Starting with the next segment later this hour, I take issue with a recent Time magazine column and talk about the changes coming during the next 10 years. It's going to be quite a ride. Later... It's all about certified pre-owned vehicles and the upcoming scarcity of them during the next few years. That, in spite of the fact that we're going to have a glut of used vehicles coming off lease. For the last segment, the conversation will center around an over-the-road trucker's questions about Elon Musk's new Tesla Semi. All that and the usual banter right here. Before we delve into the topics for the hour... Regular listeners know that they can become part of the conversation via call or text on the Roadworthy Driveline. That number is 872-222-9793 and is available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For those of you who are proficient with their fingers and would rather send an email, my address is ken at roadworthydrive.com. Either way, share your opinion, comment, or idea. All is welcome, even if you don't agree with me. I still want to hear from you. Now, Roadworthy Drive is a weekly team effort that commands the loyalty and attention of a close-knit team of people. Chief of these is my good friend and Roadworthy Drive executive producer, Jack DeLeon. Hey, Jack. Ken, how are you? And by the way, I want to know how your weekend was. My weekend was hectic and busy, but I understand you did something uh, this weekend special. You want to share? Uh, I can share, yes. You can share. Um, I'm going to back up a week. Okay. Um, as you know, a couple years ago, I bought a truck. And about a week or so ago, we were somewhere, and it was a very windy day. Mm-hmm. We had all four of the doors open, mm-hmm. and one of the doors um, smashed into my wife's leg. Ouch. Yeah. And not only did that, but it left quite a mark. Okay. And a week later, it still hurts. Oh, my. So we were in Omaha mm-hmm. on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to say to her, let's go look at trucks. Mm-hmm. Now, we came home with a new truck. You got bit by the new vehicle bug, didn't you? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh-huh. However, it solves that problem. And how's that? Um. When she hurt her leg, uh-huh. um, it was so deep of a bruise oh my. that um, we're having issues. Okay. So what we're going to do is we decided to get rid of the extended cab and go get a four-door. Okay. So we're happy with our decision. All right. And yes, Ken, 
She had to say yes before we could do it. I <laughs> know, because if mama ain't happy, thank, ain't nobody happy. Thank you. So, and, yeah. and, guy, and guys out there, I just want to say this. Mm-hmm. Make sure mama's happy that you don't come home with brand new shiny metal and don't tell mama. Yeah, not a good idea. You know you know that firsthand by hey, some of the things that you've seen in your years. Hey, brother, you know, Roadworthy Drive does not condone buying the shiny metal without mama's permission. There you go. Just okay, saying. Okay, Ken, since it was a very short week for most of us, uh-huh. what happened this week? I'm going to start with Honey, I Shrunk the Factory. Seems like this guy in California wants to take a new approach using some modern technology to develop vehicles almost on demand in much smaller factories. Um, as his thinking goes, uh, the smaller footprint calls for less investment. Which right. makes sense because the average investment on an auto assembly plant is between a half a billion and a little over a billion dollars. And you're talking about acres measured in square miles of factory and facilities and logistics and staging. And plus all the concrete that it takes to make this all happen. And that's at the very least. Yeah. But And the steel and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He thinks he can build a factory to build vehicles at scale for $50 million. Okay, what is the size? My my only question to this whole thing is, what is his height of his building? Doesn't have to be that high. Different technology. They're well, not using. If you get okay, you're telling me that he's gonna gonna use overhead cranes. I imagine he would, but you can nowadays for what you need to do in a plant like this, he's using three three D metal metal printing machines. He's using other technology. That is going to reduce the print. So needing the big stamping machines and the overhead conveyors and all that stuff, all that goes away. Because even like in a Volvo plant, you've got like little pods that go down. You don't need to do them overhead mm-hmm. for all this stuff. You know, you can still use conveyors. Uh, the this, the uh, floor plan he's got now is basically the size of a large grocery store. So you're probably talking probably less than 200,000 square feet. That is small. Because a large Walmart will set you back about 170,000 square feet. And it's a shame I even know that. (laughs) Okay. Now, if you think this guy is smoking something strange, not so much. Because he's actually raised $28 million and is in the middle of a second round to raise $100 million. And he um, he is developing vehicles for some automakers that he's not naming and is working really closely with the PSA Group, they're the folks that just bought General Motors, Adams, Opel, German subsidiary over in Europe. So they they bought, they build Peugeot and those models. And they're talking to the guy about doing this. Imagine this. Imagine small factories close to the market designed for the market that literally you order it on Friday, you get it on Monday. They're building just in time. You got it. And designed for the local market. Boy, would that be be something. And his approach to manufacturing has been patented. And uh, he's developed both a motorcycle and a sleek sports car prototype already. So just, there's been some level of proving the concept. I'm just trying to figure out how you do just-in-time uh, orders like that. With, with material and equipment uh, that allows you to do that. And that's his whole point. And how many people are we putting out of business? Um, I'm sorry. How many people are going to lose their jobs? Well, see, I don't look at it like that um, because disruptive technologies have been around for years. 
for two or three hundred actually years. Well, that's true. So this is just another thing. And besides, you know, they'll be displaced into something else. But here's the thing. The only concern I have is how these vehicles fare in an accident. Yeah, because as NTSB, uh, the NTSB, uh, NHTSA. Yeah, NHTSA. But, but let's keep it simple. It boils down to this. What this lends itself to be is an autonomous vehicle. Because autonomous vehicle, you don't need all that stuff because the computer is the brain, so your chances of being in an accident are way less. Uh, NHTSA estimates a reduction of accidents by 90%. Which we've talked about here before. We have. Now, so food for thought on that. Now, let's talk about this one I had a little trouble with when we did the pre-production meeting today. Mm-hmm. Aston Martin is going to build a condo? Yeah. And, Why? And you, and you, because they want to expand the brand. There's only okay. such a market. There's only so many $200,000 sports cars you can sell, and you want to expand the brand. Besides, they're not the first one. Porsches did the same thing in Miami, and this is where this building is going to be, a 66-story so um, condo. Uh, with uh, They estimate 391 condos with prices ranging from 600000 which is almost three times what my house costs, to $50 million each. Each. Oh, we can take that out of petty cash. Absolutely. Just don't tell Sasha that. <laughs> um, they're looking to expand their appeal. They want to expand it as a luxury brand that happens to sell cars as opposed to just selling the cars. Okay. So they've, they've expanded into, like, yachts, baby strollers, uh, and other things that they've been doing, um, and handbags even. Can you imagine an Aston Martin handbag? That's got to be over $1,000. What would James Bond say? I have no idea, but my wife would say no. Yeah, well, they're, 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 they've got to do it, and there must be some ground for it because, like I said, Porsche's building is some 20 miles away, and Porsche even went as far as having a car valet that you can actually take your car, it'll spin around and park it for you. Wow. In your building. Oh, it's way cool. Talk about futuristic. Way cool. Oh, well. When we come back, and we will come back, I'm going to take issue with a Time Magazine article, and then I want to talk about the future, most notably the next 10 years. Later on in the program, I'm going to talk about more vehicles, meaning fewer certified, and see how that is going to work. You're cruising with Ken and Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. and styling for now. Rebel, with sizes for now. 114-inch wheelbase. Seats for six. 
quality and safety for now. Deep dish wheel, energy absorbing steering column. Rebel. The first excitement machines in the intermediate class. Rebel. From the 1967 American Motors at your American Motors Rambler dealer now. Do you really want a typhoon under your hood? I didn't even know how you would control one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If you're just tuning in, welcome to Roadworthy Drive, America's premier automotive news and information talk show. I'm Ken Chester. So glad you could join us. Now, for the past two years or so, I've spent plenty of time talking about the changes that are soon to come in the automotive industry. Electric vehicles, self-driving vehicles, mobility. I've covered these themes reliably and regularly. During my travels over the past week, I was reading a Time magazine article about increased fuel usage with the dawn of self-driving cars. While the writer did acknowledge that such a prediction was an extreme case, uh, my take on it, it was a highly inaccurate one. And I want to talk about why that is a little bit. Now, in his example, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even call the guy's name, uh, it was the Time article in the current edition of Time. The name of the article was, Why Self-Driving Cars May Not Lead to a used drop in fuel consumption. And Justin Worland is his name. Yeah. Justin Worland. Yeah. Here's my problem. Okay, let's just start with the easy stuff, okay? The easy stuff is the pact that was signed by the automakers in 2012 that locked in increased fuel standards to 2022 and 2025. Now, the 2025 standards may change because uh, they agreed to look at it 2018 they didn't get them all the way codified, and the current administration is taking a second look at them. But they are locked into 2022, and it means, dear listener, that fuel economy is going to improve, and as Jack would say, wait for it, by one-third. One whole third. One whole third. Average fuel economy now is about 25.4 miles to the gallon. Right. So you're going to add another 12 miles to the gallon, roughly. So you're going to be about 37, 38 miles to the gallon. That is average fuel economy for the fleet. Average. Wow. Now, please. Average. Please, for people who are turning in for the first time, explain what you mean for the fleet. Okay. Corporate average fuel economy standard every called model, CAFE. Every model that Ford, Chevy. Basically. Or, I'm sorry, Ford GM has... Basically, the government's been sending CAFE standards for years, where the fleet has to average, and it's a complicated formula, I won't go into the weeds on that, uh, that you've got to come in at this number for okay. your fleet. All right? Right now, the average is 25.4 miles to the gallon, right now, this minute. Every new vehicle coming off the line, every new one, each year, is improving in fuel standards. It has to improve... Those averages got to improve by a third. That means more electrics. That means other alternative vehicles. And we've covered the gamut here from compressed air to solar to electric to battery operated. Heck, we've even talked about hydrogen and flying cars. All of these things got to come into the formula, which doesn't burn gasoline. This guy wants to talk about, and I'm going to read what he said. One report from the Department of Energy found that automated vehicles could reduce fuel consumption for passenger cars by as much as 90% or increase it by more than 200%. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, no, ain't going to happen. Now, his issue is why potential of outcomes is a result of a long list of variables of how a future of automated cars will take shape. Yeah, dude, 
It's called mobility, okay? We know that in the next 10 years, we are going to see the evolution, this incredible evolution of choices of how to get from point A to point B, public transportation, ride sharing, ride hailing, electric cars, self-driving cars. There'll still be gas-powered cars. There'll be, I don't know, we even talked about a solar-powered car here. There's going to be choices of how you choose to get to point A to point B uh, in the world, not just in America. This thing is going to be a worldwide phenomenon. Um, the issue that he's even raising that that extreme case is so out there, because even if the electrics never showed up, in order to keep ground, you would have to increase fuel consumption by 10% a year for the next 10 years to offset um, the fuel standards. And it ain't growing like that. Now, his argument, which is kind of disingenuous, he said, well, automated cars will drive more mileage. That, sir, is true. The reason why, because more people will be using fewer cars, that that car could be redeployed. His argument is that uh, key barriers to hopping in a car, fatigue, agent, intoxication, to name a few, will disappear, and car owners will be free to travel further even more frequently. You know what? You got a job. You got a life. You know, it's going to be bound by that. You're not just because you can go farther doesn't mean you automatically will. Um, and also, here's, here's one I thought was really cute. And once in the city, car owners might instruct their vehicle to drive around in circles rather than pay for parking. That ain't going to happen. Number one, depending on your mobility choice, if you actually own the car, and chances are it will be an electric car. Why would you burn the fuel, be it gasoline, if it still is, or it's an autonomous car, why you consume the electricity? Unless I was making money. Now, if somebody wanted to use it and I'm getting paid to do that, and there are different models popping up for that to happen, um, that's one thing. Or I might just want to park it, plug it in, and sell my excess power into the grid, which is also happening. A number of these battery-operated vehicles will have the ability to sell power into the electric grid. Think about that one for a minute and let it settle. And we're going to talk about that in a later show. So I'm like, man, really? No. You're looking at just by 2021, 2020 is ground zero. These are some of the automakers, and this ain't everybody. Volvo, Nissan, Infiniti, Lexus, Toyota, BMW, Volkswagen, Ford, GM are companies that already said we will have a vehicle on the road that's autonomous and probably does not burn gasoline by 2020, 2021. Do you think they'll get the regulations for all that through Congress? Uh, Congress is grappling with that right now. And I really think that it will be steps. It's not going to be one bill. It can't be. There's too many things to deal with. I think the rulemaking will happen in the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, as well as NHTSA. And I think it will be evolutionary. But you're looking at 10 years of evolution. And I don't think the guy is right. I think that, yeah, it's an extreme case, but a highly unlikely one. There's too many market forces at play here that will render that a kind of a dull moment. I, I don't see that. And I think I would have to agree with you after everything that we've talked about just here in the past few months. Yeah, I don't see that. Well, next up, uh, more vehicles, fewer certified. What's up with that? Finally, one trucker's concern about the Tesla Semi. This is Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthy. 
road-worthy drive with Ken Chester is America's premier automotive news and information talk show. This is segment three of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Welcome. I'm Ken Chester. For those of you who want or need more than your fair share of the road, check out our website. That's www.roadworthydrive.com for the latest on what's going on. You can watch videos of our behind-the-scenes antics in studio, listen to audio clips of previous shows, and much more. The website is also a great place to check out what we're doing across the universe of social media. From Facebook to Twitter, Sasha, our social media diva, keeps things light, lively, and fun with her unique posts on all things automotive and tech during the week. See how she keeps the social and our social media, and please be sure to like us on Facebook. Now, I have previously reported to you about the coming used vehicle glut due to a large number of vehicles coming off lease. Well, I did talk about how that supply is going to suppress vices for those vehicles, an awesome deal for consumers, by the way. It also is threatening to reduce the availability of certified used cars. A recent supplement by the automotive trade industry magazine, Automotive News, explores why, and we're going to talk about that a bit. Now, believe it or not, last year, there were some 2.4 million vehicles that were sold as certified pre-owned by automobile dealers in the United States. Okay. That number is slowing. Why? Well, a variety of things. Um, in their recovery, they built a lot of vehicles, and that pent-up demand, they pushed out a lot of vehicles, they tweaked leases. Uh, the lease that makes me crazy is the two-year, 24,000-mile lease that some larger automakers have been pushing. To me, I got a simple question. Why? I mean, Most people drive about 15,000 miles a year. Yeah, but why two years? Why even be bothered? By the time you get settled in that car, lease is up. Yep. And I'm like, what's the point? Well, for the automaker, it's a chance to keep pushing cars. And because it's so short, here's the weird part about leasing. The lower the mileage, the newer the car, the higher the car is worth, the more the car is worth at the end of the lease. Mm -hmm. That means the less you have to pay for the use of the car. Because when you're leasing, you're not buying a car. You're paying for the use of the car over time based on a formula. At the end of that formula, the automaker knows that car should be worth this. Based on this, the difference between what it costs and what it's worth is what you're paying for plus a percentage for the use of money that you borrowed as part of the lease payment, and that's your lease payment. And obviously, if they can get that residual up, they can get that monthly lease payment down, which makes it more attractive to more people. Here's the downside on that. The downside on that is those vehicles are coming back into the used car market. And we've estimated from industry sources that's 19 million vehicles the over next, the next three years. Okay, I was about to ask you. Now, that. here's the problem. If you've got this many vehicles coming back of quality, why would you pay a premium for a certified used vehicle in a market like that? Because you don't want to take the drive off when you buy a new one. No, not even close. Okay, why? It, it gets down to money. Okay. On average, you know, in order, 
for the inspections, the extended warranty, and all that, you're going to pay on average for a certified used vehicle anywhere from twelve hundred to two thousand dollars more. Right now, if I've got a vehicle in similar shape, it's two years old, three years old, I'm going to get inspected. I'm going to get a Carfax on the thing. Why would I pay two thousand more when, instead of the typical market, there may be fifty cars meeting this criteria? Get it checked out by a mechanic, take it to my dealer, have them give it the once over. If the thing's in good shape, two-year-old car ain't going to be that bad. And trust me, the manufacturers are not offering those cars that have a problem to the dealers to resell anyway. Those are going to go to general auction or they're going to go somewhere. But they're not going to be the ones that the manufacturer fools with. But these cars got to go somewhere, $19 million. And remember... The industry is only absorbing about $22.4 million a year, and that's at its height, and that number's dropping. Uh, the dealer's got to pay money up front to recondition these cars and to meet the standards that the manufacturer set for these certified pre-owned cars. It could be upwards of 120 to 184-point inspection, and they may have to do things, and they got to run those through the shop, and that's a cost. If you've got 50 cars out there that are as good as the one – that uh, you're going to spend this money on, why would you? Now, peace of mind, yeah. But again, if you're in a tight squeeze and the price of these vehicles are dropping because there's so many of them, it doesn't make economic sense to certify them because you're losing money because they're going to be worth less than a residual. So the factory's going to lose money on the resale. The dealer's going to lose money because he's got a car there that you know is going to cost Two grand more, but this car is every bit as good. It's just not certified. And if two grand is, means something, and it does to a lot of people, which is why you're looking at certified pre-owned as opposed to a new one in the first place, uh, why do it? Why do it? And that's the big problem the dealers are facing. You know, you're going to look at the vehicles that are in high demand where uh, they sell a lot of pre-owned um, and they sell a lot of certified pre-owned. Those are the ones they'll put money in, but they're going to have to really look at the market because they don't want to end up with pre-owned with a certified pre-owned vehicle that won't sell because there's an abundance of others that model that make that year that mileage that are every bit as good, but they're two grand less. And that, sir, is the problem. Now, uh, what amazed me, uh, just for some statistics. That uh, I was looking at in this automotive news item. I'm going to the last page. Uh, what was the top certified pre-owned brand last year? If I'm going to guess, it was either probably Chevrolet or Ford. No. Toyota. Toyota. It was Toyota. Wow. And that blew my mind. Chevy was number one till 2008. Toyota's been number one since. Which is interesting because... I used, typically my experience, um, I used Toyota on the lot, don't sit. Certified or not, they just don't. They have that kind of story. Um, I was, in a previous life, an automotive uh, purchase consultant. Uh, was working with a client who traded in, I want to say it was a five-year-old Camry. Had 101,000 miles on it. She was buying an Avalon. I told her when we got to the dealer... That car would be sold before the engine got cold. Yep. Would you believe before we had signed the papers on the Avalon, somebody was test driving that car? 
No, I would not have guessed that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That car was sold before we left. The car she traded wow. was sold before we left. That So I was, I was amazed that Toyota would be that high on the list. Makes me wonder why. But, yeah, I was, I was surprised. Uh, second place uh, is, is Chevrolet. Not, not a surprise there. Um, I was surprised Ford is actually number four. Honda is number three. Mm-hmm. Number 10 on the top certified pre-owned brands, Jeep. Imagine that. <laughs> when we return for the last segment, one trucker's concerns about the new Tesla Semi. Roadworthy Drive is heard exclusively on the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. You're tuned in to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Thank you for joining us for the last segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. If you're a bit of a techie, you might remember hearing about the unveiling of a new electric 18-wheeler over-the-road truck by Tesla. (laughs) Yes, I said Tesla. While there were plenty of oohs and ahs, you may not have heard any reaction from those who drive a truck for a living. Well, I stumbled across this recent piece on Autoblog by an over-the-road trucker. He had questions. And he had concerns, and I thought they were valid after reading the piece, and I wanted to share them with you, see what you thought. Um, One trucker's take, and he had some questions. Now, he talked about driving a uh, Kenworth T680 on a flatbed, and he put on about 90,000 miles a year. Um, His words, and and I'm going to quote him, while we don't know what the production truck will achieve when it hits the road, but the semi has a lot going for it. Nevertheless, the semi seems to be most impressive to those who don't know what it's like to be a truck driver. So let's talk about some of this. Now, the the trucker, and uh, his name uh, was Jonathan Ramsey. And it was in Autoblog uh, this past week. And he says, first, let's clear up what this truck is for as presented. It is not an over-the-road truck. This truck suits line haul routes that run between a company's terminals, like one regional Walmart distribution center to another. When Musk made the case for 20% savings over a diesel truck, he based the numbers on a 100-mile trip, 50 miles out, 50 miles back. The semi would be perfect for port work, which involves a lot of waiting, idling, stop-and-go traffic, local out-and-back trips. Ah, my aside right here. Toyota is already validating a prototype hydrogen-powered truck in the port of Long Beach that does this on a 200-mile cycle a day right now, four months. Just so you know. Just need to throw that out there. This version of the semi, the writer continues, will not replace the dozens of thousands of trucks on huge regional or coast-to-coast runs clocking two to 5,000 miles a week. I thought that was interesting. Um, he, he only addresses a few of the issues he had. I thought they were interesting enough to talk about. 
Now, one of the things he says, um, the central seating position. And I would have not thought about this, but I was looking at trucks today, and he's right. He says, I already get a commanding view of the road in a traditional truck because I sit six feet above traffic. What I need is a commanding view of my own truck, which the central seating position compromises. Where do you think the worst blind spot in a tractor trailer is? Probably right behind you. Where? The doors. If you're yeah. right beside him, you ever notice in a conventional truck why truck doors have those lower windows? Right, because if you're right next to the semi, the there's way no he mirror can for see that. You. Yeah. Well, but I'll argue that point because they, I'm going to use this, and this is just a term. Most trucks now have what they call busboy mirrors. Which means? Which means that you get a clear view down the entire side of that truck from the front of the truck to the back of the truck. But do they actually include, like, what would be right Cor the car? Yes, it does. Like if you're driving, like, a little Fiat. Like I I'm drove, thinking the smaller. I drove school buses for years. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Okay, okay but, here's, but here's his point. The central seating position hampers my commanding view that when I need the view the most. And you just made this point. Correct. When I back up. Yep. He wants more mirrors. He says, for any backing maneuver, I watch both sides of my trailer with my mirrors. Make sure I don't clobber anything as I lean out of the truck to watch the trailer as I back. Being able to physically watch the trailer, not camera images on screens, can be the difference between making a clean backup or making an insurance claim. And he's right. I was counting mirrors, by the way, on tractor trailer trucks I saw today. Right. Yeah. Here's his thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm skipping... Here's the other thing he says. Furthermore, I can't see from the central driving position. Mm -hmm. I can't see around trucks in front of me without pulling halfway into the other lane. When I need to change paperwork with a guard at the terminal, when you pull up to a terminal and you hand paperwork, mm -hmm. uh, or the police, I can't lean out of the window. Speaking of which, I have to believe that one of the windows on the, semi, on the Tesla semi rolls down, but he said, I can't figure out which one. And uh, it appears... From the renderings that the windows only vent, well, that's not happening. He makes a point. I, I'd want more mirrors. The Servo Condo sleeper truck at the presentation only had cameras. Yeah, that wasn't happening. Most new trucks come with mirrors mounted on the front fenders. I've seen that yep. today. Two trucks that provide view of the front corners. Mike Kenworth had seven mirrors in total, and I've seen plenty of trucks with more. You'd be amazed at the number of tiny concrete and reinforced steel impediments lurking at truck stops and customer terminals. Yep. I know that such mirrors would hamper the aerodynamics on the semi, but when those $8 contraptions could save thousands on carbon fiber rep repairs and downtime, I don't see why anyone would do without them. Now, um, he likes his physical mirrors, and I'm skipping a little bit. Um, he said, now. We want a vehicle that accelerates like nothing else. That's what they said at the presentation. This is what the trucker said. I understand acceleration is a core Tesla brand value, but I'm more interested in braking. <laughs> let me break this down to you people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me break this down. Can I talk, please? 80,000-pound trailer tractor trailer needs 550 feet to come to a complete stop from 55 miles an hour. How many feet? 550 feet. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. Uh, note to self, don't brake check a semi. 
Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Yeah, not happening. He spent a surprising portion of every driving shift not to obliterate the car uh, in front of him of drivers who weren't aware of that fact. Show me how much the semi can lop off that braking distance. Now, let me break down some weight for you. He said, Jack, Jack, uh, he said, uh, Elon Musk said, Jack knifing is impossible. The trucker said, that's a lie. <laughs> Unless the Tesla semi and Tesla trailer can counteract physics and human error. Now, he just used his Freightliner for an example. Right. Empty. The tractor weighed nine tons, 18,000 pounds. The trailer added eight more tons. So you're looking at 17 tons empty. Right. Now, add a load, 23 tons of 46,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. So you're rolling full 40 tons. Yep. Full. Yep. Did I mention 40 tons? Yes, you did. You may okay. have. He said, when stuffed to the gills, I had 62,000 pounds ready to push me around or come around. If either through physics or human error, the drive wheels or the trailer brake lose too far, <laughs> yeah, it won't stop the semi. On that note, uh, we're out of time as usual. On behalf of Jack, Sasha, and myself, thanks for listening. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.